Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. So all God's people said, Let us rise and worship the triune God. Bless the Lord who forgives our sins. Daniel 9, verses 4 and 9 says, And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession, and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. So lift up your hearts. Father God, worship is due unto your name. So we come today to ascribe unto you the worth and honor that is your due. You have created us and redeemed us. You have made us and loved us. You have called us and saved us. You have begotten us by your word from the dead, and now we lift holy hands, lift grateful hearts, lift joyful voices to sing your praise, for you are worthy of all our worship. So to you, almighty God, with the Son, our Lord Jesus, and the Holy Ghost, be all honor and glory, world without end, and amen. Amen. You're nowhere near as happy as God intends you to be. Not even close. Our community here is immensely blessed. We have marriages that are full of warmth and intimacy. Our houses are filled with the reverberations of children's joyful laughter and the aroma of family meals together. The work of our hands has been blessed by God. Our bellies are full of good food. Our homes are full of sweet fellowship. Our community is full of peaceful friendships. Our educational institutions and practices are Christ-centered, and our church is filled with gospel preaching and God-fearing worship. And even with the hard providences that are sent us, the trials that grieve us, the temptations that beset us, God has shown extraordinary kindness to us. Could it get any better? While all of this is indeed good, what is yet to come is superlatively better. If all the joy you've ever known could be rolled into a singular experience, it would be but a crumb in the feast which awaits the people of God. Imagine when temptation is no longer constantly tugging at your elbow. Consider what it will be like to have the brilliance of sunshine outshined by the glory of Christ and ponder that you shall bask unimpeded in that glory. Think that sorrow and suffering will be no more. Every painful memory swallowed up by delight. Every heartache healed, every terror dispelled, every regret forgotten. The blessings we taste here on earth are but a foretaste of unimagined raptures which we will enjoy endlessly. After all, in his presence is the fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Maximum joy endlessly. That is the promise to those who believe. As we shall sing a little bit later in the service, solid joys and lasting pleasures none but Zion's children know. Daniel 9, 5 through 7, we have sinned 
and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces, as at this day. To the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel that are near and that are far off, Though all, through all the countries, whither thou hast driven them, because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee. Father God, as C.S. Lewis once put it, we're far too easily satisfied. You offer us unending, undying joy, and yet we insist on clutching at the trinkets of earth. Not only does this rob us of the joy you intend for us in eternity, but it even strips these earthly joys of their intended purpose. These earthly joys, we confess, are meant to whet our appetite, not satisfy it. We confess that we have been charmed by the world's baubles, rather than saying like David, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house. If we in the church regard sin in our own hearts or in our own lives, we know this prayer will be ineffectual. So we confess our individual sins to you now, and Selah. We do this in Jesus' mighty name, and amen. Let's stand together for the assurance of pardon. Isaiah 33, 24 says, And the inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven the iniquity. God sent his son not just to try to stick a band-aid on your sin, but that he by his blood might fully blot out your sins, turning the crimson stain of sin to the brilliant whiteness of snow. And because of this gospel truth, I can declare unto you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. The text this morning is from Colossians chapter 4, starting at verse 2. These are the words of God. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you receive commandments. If he come unto you, receive him. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, and Nymphus, and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. 
Our Father in God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this epistle. And we thank you for this passage before us. I pray that your spirit would be with us as we seek to understand it and as we look for ways to apply it in truth. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus and amen. amen. So we've gone through the book of Colossians and we conclude this letter by noting the emphasis that this last section places on both words and names, words slash speaking and names of individuals. Paul is concerned with the prayers of the Colossians and their speech toward others outside. Obviously, when you're praying, you're speaking to God. And when you're talking to outsiders, you're speaking to outsiders. And he's also concerned for those who minister in there in that region. And those who minister in that region are preachers, speakers, uh, people who are exhorting the saints. He always wants them to pray for him that his speech would be unfettered and plain. And in addition to all this, Paul concludes with a number of greetings to individuals, each of whom had a life, a face, and a part in the story. These are individuals, regular people like you and me. And so Paul concludes his letter the way he frequently does with greetings and salutations to various uh, co-workers. Now, as Paul wraps up this short letter to the Colossians, he does this in characteristic fashion. He tells them to continue in prayer, and he tells them also to be watchful in that prayer with thanksgiving. Verse 2, notice that watchfulness is accompanied with thanksgiving. If, you're, if you are grumbling, you're not being watchful. If you're moaning and complaining, if you're if you have moaning sessions concluded with, in Jesus' name, amen, that's not being watchful with thanksgiving. That's not praying with thanksgiving. So Paul tells them to be watchful in that prayer with thanksgiving. <clears throat> he asks to be included in their prayers that God would open up opportunities for him to preach the mystery of Christ. Verse 3. He wants to make this mystery manifest as he ought to do, verse 4. And he then tells the Colossians to walk in wisdom with regard to outsiders, making the most of the time, verse 5. And he also tells them to have their speech, they're speaking again, to have their speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that they can make adjustments on the fly, so they can make adjustments as they go, as they answer all kinds of men, as they interact with all kinds of people. Verse 6. He then gets into the um, naming of different individuals, the beloved and faithful Tychicus, the man who is delivering the letter along with Onesimus, will bring them up to date. Verse 7. He, he was sent to encourage the Colossians and to find out for Paul how they were doing. Uh, verse 8. It's interesting that Paul expects the letters to communicate something. He also expects the letter bearer to communicate something. So he says that Tychicus and Onesimus will bring you up to speed. Here's my letter bringing you up to speed, but they're going to fill in any gaps. And Tychicus apparently is going to be coming back with news for Paul about the Colossians. So Onesimus is with Tychicus, and he will fill in any additional gaps. Verse 9, Aristarchus is in prison with Paul. And he sends his regards. Mark, John Mark, otherwise known as John Mark, the one who wrote the gospel of Mark. John Mark is the nephew of Barnabas, we find out here. And he should be received by them if he comes. Verse 10. Now this indicates that 
the earlier quarrel between Paul and Barnabas had been repaired by this point. And you recall that that quarrel was over John Mark. It was over whether, whether or not John Mark ought to go with them on the next missionary journey. Uh, John Mark had left them in Pamphylia on the first missionary journey. And some people think that it was because John Mark was being wimpy or he was not, um, he, he was not as stalwart as he ought to have been. But I, I think that the issue was the first Jerusalem council had not yet occurred. And John Mark left at Pamphylia, which is the first stop after the first presentation of the gospel to a raw Gentile, to just someone who was just... Uh, not a God-fearer, not in the synagogue, not just a plain old Gentile. Uh, the gospel was presented to him, and at the next stop, John Mark, uh, John Mark left. The Jerusalem Council happened then, and the decision came down in favor of Paul's position. John Mark apparently accepted that decision, but Paul didn't trust it. Barnabas, being his uncle, trusted John Mark's um, acceptance of the decision and wanted to take him. And it says Paul and Barnabas quarreled uh, so significantly over that that they parted ways. And then Paul went off with Silas and Barnabas ministered on his own. So this indicates that the earlier quarrel between the, the two had been repaired, and it perhaps shows us why Barnabas wanted to stick with Mark after the Jerusalem council. He knew him better. He was a nephew. He was a, he was a relative. A man named Jesus, also called Justice, belonged to the circumcision party, but despite this, was in good fellowship with Paul and was a fellow worker with him. Verse 11. Now this indicates that the circumcision party had an orthodox wing. Uh, so there, there were members of the circumcision party who were false brethren, as Paul calls them in Philippians. He says, these dogs, these mutilators of the flesh, the people who were in the church insisting on circumcision for salvation, uh, they, were false, they were false brothers. And, and when he says here that, um, that justice or Jesus or justice was of the circumcision, he was not talking about the fact of physical circumcision because virtually all of them were circumcised, all of them were, were Jews. What he's talking about here is he's a, he's a member of a particular faction in the church. He is uh, of the circumcision party, but the circumcision party apparently had an orthodox wing, meaning that they weren't subverting the gospel, they weren't insisting on circumcision for salvation for the Gentiles, etc. So, Paul had a good working relationship with him. Epaphras, remember, was the likely founder of the church at Colossa, and Paul commends him highly in verse 12. In addition, we see that he was also ministering with great zeal in the nearby towns of Heropolis and Laodicea, verse 13. So, uh, we, we see that Epaphras is not just a minister in the congregation at Colossa, but he's also ministering in outlying uh, areas. Luke is described here as the beloved physician. We learn that Luke um, here is a doctor, he's a physician, and he sends his greetings, and as did Demas, as this was before his falling away. In another letter, we learn that Demas, uh, in love with his present world, has uh, deserted Paul, but he had not done that by at this point, verse 14. So the church in Colossa was in close communication with the church at Laodicea. They're only a few miles apart. And the church, their church there was of a size that it was able to meet in the house of Nymphus, verse 15. 
they were instructed to swap letters with the church in Laodicea, verse 16. That, that epistle to the Laodiceans we don't have, um, but the Colossians apparently had it read to them, and then the letter of Colossians was read to the Laodiceans. Paul wanted Archippus to be encouraged by them. He was perhaps laboring in Laodicea also, verse 17, and with that, Paul signs off and ends the letter, verse 18. Now, if we go back to verse 2, he says, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Continue in prayer. When the gospel is preached efficaciously out in the world, the entire body of Christ is involved in it. It is not correct to say that some Christians do evangelism. Uh, you can say that some Christians are evangelists, just as you can say that when you speak, you use your mouth. But the whole body is speaking. When someone is commissioned and sent out by the church and they plant a church, or they go out as a missionary, or they go out and do open-air preaching at the University of Idaho, they are not there alone. They are not there by themselves. They are representing the entire body, and they are speaking on behalf of the entire body, and the entire body is involved in the process. The church as a whole is an evangelist. The church as a whole is an evangelistic endeavor. Note that Paul does not say that he is quote-unquote an apostle and that he therefore has it all well in hand. He wants believers, he asks the Colossians to lift him up so that he might be able to lift up Christ in the message that he preaches. Now, this involves propositional content, certainly, but Paul didn't need prayer in order to learn that propositional content. Paul already knew that. Paul had been an apostle for uh, years by this point. He knew the gospel. He understood the gospel. He had written scripture outlining the gospel. Paul knows the gospel, and he's not, he's not asking for prayer that... Uh, he not have an attack of the butterflies before he gets up. Paul's not concerned here about stage fright. He's not, he's not concerned about stage fright. He's not concerned that he doesn't know the message. There's something else going on. He wants believers to lift him up so that he might be able to lift up Christ in the message he pre preaches. He knew the content of the message already, but he still required the prayers of the saints. There was a time, one time, Spurgeon, who was an out, a very effective uh, preacher of the gospel in 19th century London, there was a time when Spurgeon was asked about the secret of his power, and his answer was, my people pray for me. That, that was the answer. My people pray for me. That's, that's why he can speak potently. Now, here's, this is the issue. When you're preaching the gospel to non-believers, when you're announcing the gospel to an unbelieving generation, it is not like you're giving a talk on some subject that you might have expertise on, like software coding or how the internal combustion engine works. There, you might be concerned about speaking skills only or by, uh, about stage fright or butterflies, and that's the, that's the sole issue. But when you're preaching the gospel, spiritual warfare is involved. You are going into enemy territory, and you are talking to people. You're announcing the gospel to people who are enslaved to their sins, and the gospel that you're preaching will, if it is heard in a particular way, result in their shackles falling off. And the devil who attached those shackles doesn't want that to happen. 
And so he's going to come after the preacher. He's going to come after the people who are upholding the preacher in prayer. He's going to do all kinds of things to try to distract. So, for example, the gospel is the objective reality of Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ resurrected, and Christ ascended. That is the gospel. The gospel is not ask Jesus into your heart. That's not the gospel. That's a response to the gospel. That's not the gospel. It'd be very easy for someone to say, well, I went to them and I preached the gospel. And, and, he's, and he believes that he preached the gospel because his talk was just crammed full of evangelical cliches. You know, about Jesus in your heart and a personal relationship. and so, But th that's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ crucified for sinners outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Christ laid in the grave. Christ resurrected on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And Christ ascended into heaven. That's the gospel. Therefore, what do you do? Well, therefore, you repent and believe. You respond to the gospel. But the objective word is an objective seed. It, uh, the, the, the fertility of the soil is one thing. The potency of the seed is another. The gospel is a potent seed. It is an imperishable seed, uh, Peter tells us. And so when you go out to plant that seed in a place where the devil does not want it planted, you're not dealing with simple speaking skills. You're not, you're not dealing with what you might have learned in a communications class. Um, you need prayer to make things manifest. You need prayer to make it clear. So, uh, you're, you're, um, you're, you're, there are different ways to explain this. You're not, you're not explaining something that you know about and the people you're talking to don't know about. You, well, you, that's true, but it goes much beyond that. There's, there's a difference between explaining a mathematical problem or mathematical process that you understand and the class doesn't understand. You can teach that. But it's, uh, the preaching of the gospel is more like explaining blue to blind men. You're explaining blue to blind men. You're preaching blue to blind men. And, you, and your task is to go out there and preach blue to the blind and make it plain. And so what does Paul say? What, what is Paul's reaction to this? Elsewhere he says, who is sufficient for these things? And here he says to the Colossians, pray for me that I might make the gospel manifest. Pray for me that I might be able to punch through the blindness. Because punching through the blindness is, can only be done if the Spirit's at work, and the Spirit is going to be at work if God's people are praying. Right, so it's a, it's a um, spiritual battle, spiritual tussle, a spiritual engagement, and you, and you declare the objective reality of blue, and then through a work of the Spirit, the blind see. Something happens. And that something, happens, that, something that happens is not uh, a rhetorical device. It attends preaching, it attends speaking, but it is not caused by it. So it, what's, the cause of it is what the Holy Spirit does in his work. Another illustration of this uh, sort of thing. There's a great passage in Ezekiel when Ezekiel is confronted with the valley of dry bones. And God says uh, to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? Quite an audience you have there, Ezekiel, scattered bones all over. And Ezekiel says, Sovereign Lord, you know. Can these bones live? 
you know. And the Lord says to him, prophesy to the bones. Preach to the bones. A, a gospel evangelist is not someone walking through a hospital ward trying to convince the patients to take the medicine. A, an evangelist is someone walking through the graveyard seeking to raise the dead. Right? So if you say, well, I, I've got a rhetorical trick for you. Why don't you stand on one of the tall tombstones over there and, and wave your arms when you preach? Or why, why don't you yell? Well, yelling won't do it. And waving your arms won't do it. All the rhetorical tricks that you can think up will not do it. You cannot raise the dead. But God says to the prophet, prophesy to the bones. Preach to the bones. And he does. And they start coming to life. And that's because God uses what Ezekiel does. But what Ezekiel does on its own is insufficient. Paul knows that what he does as, a, as an apostle, as an emissary, as a church planner, as an evangelist is insufficient. So he says to the Colossians, pray for me that I might be able to get them to see blue. They're blind. Pray, for, pray that they would see blue. They're dead. Pray that they would come to life. Think of it this way. When the gospel is preached, the church should be swinging for the fence. When the gospel is preached, whenever the gospel is preached, the whole church is at bat. The whole church should be swinging for the fence. And the preacher might be the hands holding the bat. But the reason the ball goes over the fence has to do with the placement of the feet and how the hips rotate. The whole body is involved in what happens. When Reformation and Revival happens, it happens to the body. It happens to everyone. It happens in a, the spirit moves in corporate ways. Paul knew that. Every preacher of the gospel since that time who's been effective knows that. And, and, they, and they know, it says in Acts one time, they so spake that a great many people believed. It's not that rhetoric and... and um, and, you know, enunciating and making your message clear and sermon prep. It's not that those things are um, to, to be dismissed or to be despised. It's simply that you can chop all the wood and you can arrange all the stones and you can, you can have the altar there and you can have the wood there and still not have the fire fall from heaven. You can, you can do everything you ought to do, and you ought to do those things. You ought to prepare your message. You ought to think through what you're going to say. You ought to learn how to speak. You ought to learn how to enunciate. All the, that's why we have ministerial training. But all the ministerial training in the world will only get you an altar with dry wood on it. That's all that's going to happen. Unless the Spirit falls, that's all that's going to happen. And when the Spirit falls, Paul says, then it's manifest. Make it clear, as Elijah says on Mount Carmel, uh, reveal from heaven who is the true God. In gospel preaching, in gospel preaching that is anointed, the true God is revealed. The true God is manifested. The true God is made plain, and it's a work of the Spirit. Paul says also in this section that he wants the Colossians' speech to be gracious, he says, seasoned with salt. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. Now, we can determine in part what Paul intends by, season, by that phrase, seasoned with salt, by looking at the result that he believes it will obtain. There are three parts to his exhortation. The first is, let your speech be always with grace, 
Let your speech be always with grace. That's the baseline. That is what you are communicating. Your words are to be rooted and grounded in grace, and the fruit that your words bear are to be equally gracious. But what is grace, and what is grace but undeserved favor? Our message is grace, God's grace to a rebellious, impudent, arrogant humanity. Our message is grace, proceeding from grace and heading toward more grace. All of it is grace upon grace. God is gracious to this world. If God wanted to be ungracious to this world, if God wanted to simply be just, he could have incinerated it with a word. But God wanted to redeem the world. He wanted to save the world. He wanted the world to be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And he wanted to use as his starting uh, equipment a bunch of broken, messed up people. That's what he wanted to do. I want to make a new humanity, and I want to make a new humanity out of the old humanity, and I want to do it through Christ. So all of this is grace upon grace. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're communicating to non-believers. The second part of the exhortation is, this ex is the uh, phrase seasoned with salt. Whatever your gracious words are, put some salt on it. Whatever your gracious words are, put some salt on it. Grace needs salt. Grace needs salt. That's why Paul said seasoned with salt. If you're speaking grace, all grace, nothing but grace, and put some salt on it. Like eggs, eggs are wonderful, right? Can I have, get an amen? <laughs> eggs, eggs are wonderful, but, but like eggs, grace still needs salt. You'd have to be an, a raccoon to eat eggs without salt. A particularly uneducated raccoon. <laughs> Eggs are great. Eggs are great. And salt is not, salt is a, pe a peculiar kind of seasoning because it's not, it's not like uh, overwhelming like Tabasco sauce or something like that. It's, it's, uh, what salt does is it, it has the capacity to bring out all kinds of different flavors. Uh, you put salt on eggs, it's one thing. You put salt on corn. That's another. If you put butter and salt on corn, it's yet an, an, another. You put, you put salt on watermelon, and you think, what, people do that? You, well, yes, they do. My father does that. <laughs> you put salt on watermelon, it brings, it brings out yet another flavor. And you put salt on prime rib, it does something completely different. Uh, salt is a, a very versatile seasoning. And you've heard um, when Jesus says, in this, uh, that you are the salt of the earth, you, you remember that salt was used for different purposes in the ancient world. One was a preserve as a preservative, and that may be what the Lord is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, another way salt was used in uh, the ancient world was, a, was as a weapon of war, salting the earth after you conquered uh, a, a territory so it wouldn't grow things anymore. But here, it's plain that Paul is talking about salt as a seasoning. Paul's talking about salt as a seasoning. And he says, your gracious words put salt on it. These are all types of variegated grace, and salt is an additional grace. So what kind of grace, what kind of grace do you offer to outsiders, and how much salt do you put on it? That depends, and we see the third part, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. All right, so let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, 
so that you can know how to answer every man. He's saying uh, uh, flavor, to, uh, flavor to suit the situation, adjust to suit the circumstances. In the verse prior, Paul told, told them to walk in wisdom, and wisdom understands the mystery of timing. There's sometimes you're witnessing to someone, what, you might say, what, what, is the, what is the salt? It could be something like as um, innocuous as humor, you know, making, uh, making a, a joke or making light of a particular situation. And you can see how you, if someone's on the, on the verge of calling on the Lord, you can see how an ill-timed joke could blow everything up, right? Wrong. It's, it's just wrong. Uh, but you could also see how a, a well-timed uh, humorous comment might bring someone in. Why? Because you're adjusting the message of grace with salt, Right? You're, you're adjusting it with salt, flavoring it to suit the occasion so that you can know how to answer every man. You don't just say salt is good, so I'm just going to dump the whole thing on whatever, it, you know, one size fits all. It's not one size fits all. The wise man once said the only difference between salad and garbage is timing. And which, <laughs> which is really true. You know, people are helping themselves out of the bowl and then 10 minutes later, the bowl is on the counter next to the dishwasher and nobody wants any of it because it's garbage now. Um, when you're talking with people, when you're interacting with people, you have to understand that there are uh, many things that you can get away with if you love the Lord and you love the gospel and you love the, um, if you love the people that you're preaching to, uh, you're going to be able to get away with things that somebody might say, oh, that's, you know, that's, here's, here's an example. One time Dwight Moody, a great evangelist, great American evangelist of the 19th century, uh, was holding a crusade. And at the beginning of the crusade, one of the local pastors got up and opened in prayer. And a non-believer had come in to hear Moody preach, and the local pastor, this was his moment to shine, and so he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed some more. And, and so this non-believer who had come to hear Moody preach was just about ready to chuck it, pack it in, and, you know, I'm, I'm getting out of here. When Moody got up next to the preacher who was praying and said, while brother so-and-so finishes talking to the Lord, let's all sing... <laughs> that's seasoning with salt that's seasoning with salt right and the non-believer said oh i better I, I better stay and he did and was converted you might think well you we want to be polite no matter what no you want to be gracious no matter what but seasoned with salt so that you can know, so you can read the situation and you can see that it's veering off or it's coming in or it's doing well. You want your speech to be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you can know how to answer every man. So then, what is it that Paul wants to make manifest? He wants to make manifest the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ is something, as we considered earlier in the book of Colossians. A mystery is not, is not like a whodunit, not like a mystery novel where the mystery is hidden until the last couple of pages. The mystery in the New Testament is something that was hidden for ages past throughout the Old Testament, but which now in the time of the New Testament is made clear, made manifest. This was God's purpose all along. So the mystery of Christ is something that was hidden for long ages past, but the responsibility now is for the emissaries of the church 
to make the mystery plain. The word rendered in verse 4 as manifest means to reveal or make clear. It comes from a root word, which means to shine. You, you want the proclamation of the gospel to be a radiant light. You want the proclamation of the gospel to shine on every man. All through the Old, <coughs> excuse me, all through the Old Testament, the Christ was the promised one. When he came to earth, he lived a perfect, sinless life so that that perfect, sinless life could be imputed to us. He died on the cross so that the penalty for our iniquity might be fully paid. He went to the grave. He went into the grave so that we might come out of the grave. He went into the grave so that we might come out of it, and we can't come out of it unless we go into it with him. This is all union with Christ. Christ died, we died. Christ was buried, we were buried. Christ rose, we rose. Christ ascended, we ascended. He was raised to life for our justification, and when he ascended into the heavens, it was so that we might not know him after the flesh any longer. We confess and we affirm that Jesus was a true man, born of the Virgin Mary. He walked around this earth like we do. He slept, he ate, he sailed in boats, he, he, he functioned, lived a perfect human life. But Paul says we do not know him after the flesh any longer. That's not how we recognize him now. We confess that that's what he did, and that's what he remains. He remains a high priest, interceding for us at, at the right hand of the Father. He's still Davidson. He's still a son of David. He's still one of us, and we are going to be conformed to his likeness when we see him. When we see him, we're going to become like him because we will see him as he is. What I'm saying is that we worship Christ of the cosmos, the one in whom all things are transfigured. He is the one who created all the galaxies. He's the one who spoke them all into existence. He is the one who created this world. He is the one who fashioned you. He is the one who created you. He is the one who, in the providence of God, oversaw the rebellion of the human race, rebellion away from God. It did not happen by accident. It wasn't the result of God dropping the world. It wasn't the result of the world slipping through his fingers. It was God's sovereign decree that we would rebel and run away from him. And it was his decree, also equally his decree, that he would bear the brunt of the penalty of that rebellion. When he decreed that we would rebel, he also decreed that his son, his beloved son, would bear the brunt of God's wrath, just and holy wrath, on that rebellion, that wrath would fall on Jesus of Nazareth. And so Jesus of Nazareth cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He goes into the grave. He comes out of the grave and he ascends into heaven. He comes before the ancient of days where he, he receives glory and majesty, dominion and power. He receives it all. He receives all the nations of men as his inheritance. And we are part of that inheritance. And then he tells us to fan out across the globe, telling everybody, preaching the gospel basically to every creature. Preach, preach the gospel. If it's, if it's moving, preach the gospel, right? You, you go out, preach the gospel to every creature. And as we preach the gospel this way, all things are transfigured. 
All things are brought to life. The energy that brings everything to life is the energy of the objective gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's, the, that's where the power is. What, what are the extension cords that run from that power? Preachers, churches, God's people. The Spirit is the one who brings the, the, uh, uh, the authority of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the potency of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the power of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is brought to dark, benighted places in the globe by churches, people gathering to worship God, establishing centers of worship, and people start wondering, what's different? What's going on? Why is this happening? Why do I not feel the same way about my, my pagan way of unbelief? Why, why am I discontent now? We worship the Christ of the cosmos, the one in whom all things are transfigured, the one through whom all things are made new. And so we worship him today here. And as we worship, we are declaring to the world his manifest deity and the glories of his mediatorial reign. Nothing will ever be the same. This cannot be undone. This cannot be reversed. This is not up for, uh, we can't have a recount or a revote or do over. It's all settled. The redemption of this planet is done. Christ died and rose. It is finished, he said. It is accomplished, he said. And then he said to his followers, go tell everybody that it's done. Go tell everybody that it's accomplished. Don't go tell everybody to try to recruit them to get it to be accomplished. Don't try to recruit people so that they can do it and somehow bring their ramshackle redemption to me, asking me to bless it. I'm not going to bless anything that they bring to me. I'm going, to bless when, I'm going to bless it when they bring back to me the fruit of what I have done in my son dying on the cross, being buried in the grave, and rising again from the dead. When they go out and proclaim that, and they see it bear fruit, and they bring the fruit of that proclamation back, I, the Father says, I will receive all of it. That was the whole point. But if they go out there, cook up their own gospel, cook up their own ways of self-salvation, cook up their own ways of making themselves better, and they dress themselves all up, dust themselves off, and come before me, they're coming into the wedding bank, and they're coming into the, the wedding bank without, without any wedding clothes. That's not how you do it. What we need to do is say, I want to be clothed in Christ. I want to be clothed in gospel. I want to be clothed in nothing but righteousness. You have to be clothed in perfection. You can't be accepted by God unless you're perfect. You cannot be accepted by God unless you're perfect. And that's why we have Christ. Christ is the perfect one. Christ is our perfect righteousness. He is our perfect dress. He is our perfect robe. He is our perfect coat. He is the perfect man. And we put on the new man. And when we put on the new man and we approach God in Jesus' name, that's what we're doing. We're saying, because of Christ's perfections, I can come to you. Because of Christ's holiness, I can come before you. And because of that, Everybody who comes before Christ on this side of the room is as equally holy as everyone who comes to, Christ, comes to God in the name of Christ on this side of the room. There are no variations in our justification. All of us have the same perfection when we pray to God. All of us have the same perfection when we come before him. All of us. 
It doesn't matter if you had a lousy week last week. You come before God. If you come before God in Jesus' name, you are coming before him perfect. And if you had a great week last week, it still wasn't good enough, right? right? If you had a great week, it wasn't good enough. And if you had a lousy week, it was certainly bad enough. That's why you need to come in Jesus' name. That's why you come. That's why you pray in Jesus' name. That's why you put on Christ. That's why we call ourselves Christians. That's why we worship in the power of the gospel. Our Father and God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for this opportunity to declare your wonder and your glory and your power and your dominion. Father, I pray that you'd help us internalize these things as we as we seek to understand them. And I pray that, we'd, that we would learn as well how to live them out. Amen. If you've never noticed, children ask questions. I've noticed a lot of questions. And this isn't a defect to be sanded down or washed out. It's the grain of the wood. God wants catechism to be an integral part of our parenting and we see this in various places in Scripture, but perhaps nowhere as poignantly as in the instructions which God gave Moses regarding the Passover. God tells Moses that once Israel is brought into the promised land, they are to keep the Passover. And then God instructs, and it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, what mean you by this service? That you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. The questions were not the hurdle to partaking of the Passover meal. The meal was these children's, it was theirs to enjoy because they were covenant members of God's people. The questions flowed out of faithful observance. The questions are proof that covenant children ought to learn to pay attention in order to come to understand the spiritual meaning of the physical meal. Furthermore, we also see in this that fathers need to be teaching their children to ask questions and teaching their children by answering those questions. Parents, teach your children by teaching them to ask the sort of questions God wants them asking. Then answer those questions by turning to God's word for answers. Our church practices pedo communion, meaning baptized children are not kept from partaking of this meal. We do this because we believe that as our children partake of this meal, it raises questions about what this meal means, and thus we are afforded an opportunity to once more instruct our children in the faith. We are, in fact, cutting with the grain. So come in faith and welcome to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us and our children to this table. Help each of us from the wee ones to the old ones to grow more and more in our understanding and knowledge of all you give us through your son, who we remember in this meal. It's in Jesus' name we give thanks, and amen. amen. So remember that Paul exhorted the Colossians that their speech be seasoned with salt, be full of graciousness. Um, some of us would hear the commission to go and preach the gospel and go, here's my chance to be snarky and to jab and to snipe and to, and to, to go out with that sort of uh, attitude. He, he didn't say season your language with cod liver oil, after all. It was salt. And, and keep in mind how Paul closes the book. You know, he says, keep, let these words be seasoned with salt, with graciousness. And then at the, the close of it, he says, remember, I'm in bonds. I'm in prison. So if... Being gracious in your words is tough for you. Paul says, remember, I'm in prison. <laughs> the gospel 
He wants us to remember, in the Colossians, to remember that the gospel costs you everything. So go live like Christians. And remember, it just might land you in prison, and it just might cost you your life. Now hear the benediction of the Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.